Hello and welcome to Get Mad with Vesper Moore, your place for all things transformative mental health, mad pride, and disability justice. When someone tries to silence you, scream louder. That is the quote of today's guest, Anita Diaz. Anita Diaz is a spoken word artist and slam poet born and raised in Brockton, Massachusetts. Anita has featured at venues all over San Diego. She has collaborated with artists from Boston, Southern California, and Detroit. Her writings and performances are an inspiration to so many people. Welcome, Anita Diaz. Thank you for joining me in the Get Mad studio. Welcome. Thank you, Vesper. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. It's so good to have you here. I figured just to like kind of start out, your work has had widespread impact. And what I mean is like your poetry really has reached a lot of psych survivors, a lot of people in the mental health system, a lot of, a lot of people more largely. Did you ever think um, about the, the impact your, your poetry would have on our society or that it would get this big? Uh, no, <laughs> I, um, I think like I've always had kind of like hopes and wants to like have a poem that goes viral and like be that popular poet because like my who my mentors are and I'm just like I want to do that like when is that going to happen for me type of thing but with this particular poem um the you know and the psych ward says I wrote the initial version like in the hospital um when I was still there and I shared it with like the friends that I made that were also like you know, uh, patients there and they were like, yeah, you should definitely do something with that. And I was like, I think so. I think I'm going to edit it and see what happens. And then I was not supposed to compete in the individual world poetry slam, which is where the poem got recorded. That final stage that year was the day of my 38th birthday. So I had already planned to go to Vegas. I already had a suite booked. <laughs> myself in Vegas and but last minute I was like all right fine but if I do this I definitely I'm getting on final stage and then I got there and I just I just I just did the poem I was just happy in the moment to like be on final stage and it wasn't until after final stage at you know there was like an after party um at Queen Bees which is a venue in San Diego and so many poets 
came up to me to tell me how the poem impacted them and how they related. And it that was like huge for me, just like the, it was overwhelming. I was also like, it was my birthday, so I wasn't sober. But it, it was just like, I didn't expect that. I don't know, I didn't expect it because it's not, I feel like psychiatric states are like not something that's like super talked about. It's now that I've like, shared this poem and met so many people it's become more of a normal conversation in my life but I feel like prior to that I didn't I I didn't know that I knew people that had had psychiatric stays in the psych wards and so I had I did not think the poem was going to blow up I I was like it would be cool you know because I knew button recorded it so in my head I was like I'm gonna have a poem on button and that was it I was just happy and then the day it dropped, I was actually turning down a job because <laughs> I was like, I feel like my poetry is about to go somewhere and I need to, I need to be available. So I was like, they needed me to like work for like eight weeks straight and no take no time off. And it was like a lot of training hours. And I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work for my schedule. Um, <laughs> and I didn't even have a schedule. I had no bookings, but I had like, I just had a feeling and I was like, yeah, I can't do this job. And it was a really good job. Um, and I left and I got, I got back in my car, turned my phone back on and my phone was blowing up. Everybody was sending me the video. I was like, oh shit. And it was already at like 10,000 views almost. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. I didn't know the poem was going to blow up the way it did. And that day when button released it and, I remember just celebrating with like my roommate and my best friend <laughs> and but then I started getting flooded you know with messages and I was just like wow this is like the most important thing I've ever written I think um yeah it really like I don't know it was like damn we can these poems ain't just poems y'all like we really got to do something with this these platforms that we have like that's what it made me think it's 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 such an important answer. And I think the reason why I say that is because we don't often think what will spark a revolution or what will feed into a revolution, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, even though I feel like psychiatric survivors, we've had many different platforms to share and talk about our experiences, there aren't that many mainstream poems or mainstream things that talk about those carceral experiences. Often, when we think about incarceration, we're thinking about Department of Corrections prisons. We're not often thinking about the psychiatric institution because the, the sanest, ablest mindset there is, is that those institutions are there to help you. You don't know what's right for you, right? And there, there are actually exact lines in your poem that point right to that. And it's just so bold. It's like, you don't often see poetry that's that bold or at least around this subject, right? Thank you for that. Um, I like to think that I'm bold. I'm blunt, <laughs> I think. And so that translates through my, my poetry, definitely. Um, and I, with this poem, I think in particular, like I just really wanted to, I, was, I struggled with how to tell the story. Like I went to my mentors. Um, I shared the poem with... Um, Rudy Francisco with Javon Johnson, with uh, Imani Cezanne, with Natasha Hooper, um, 
Chrissy Croft. And so they all kind of helped me like here and there, like give their feedback on the poem. And I was just like, I'm not sure which direction to go in. And something Javon asked me, he said to dig deeper and to really be able to uh, make the audience feel what I feel felt like translate that in a way. And those aren't the words that he used, but that was basically the message is like, figure out a way to like translate that through the story and like focus on that versus like how to craft the poem. So that was my main focus. And so I just like really sat in like those feelings and I went back to all of the journal entries I had from, I kept all the paperwork from the hospital. Like to this day, I still have it. So like, all the stupid little worksheets that they gave us and like all of it. And so I just went back through it and it just like put me back in that place for a minute. And like, I practiced self-care afterwards. Like I was a plan. So I was like, I know this may trigger me, but we gonna work it out. Like if for a moment I have to sit in this place to get this message out, then I can do that. Um, so that's, that's what I did. And, and then it translated in that way. And it's not super like metaphorical at all. Like it's very straightforward, I think. Um, and it's personification. It's so it's. I didn't feel the need to be heavy on the metaphors, um, with the message being what it was. So and I also. I finished writing the poem, like less than two weeks before I performed it on final stage. And I started like, choreographing it and like practicing the performance one week like that Saturday before and the final stage was on Saturday so that Saturday before is when I started actually like memorizing and rehearsing it so it was like the most intense seven day of like poetry boot camp that I put myself through <laughs> with my coaches and teammates and um it was definitely well worth it like it was that was probably the hardest I've ever worked so that had to be like really visceral when you like performed that, like, like you were sitting in that and then you like, you were in that space. Yeah. And I did that poem first in the competition because I was like, if I'm going to do any poem, cause you know, it's, they cut people after each round. So I was like, if I'm gonna do any poem on final stage, it's going to be this one. Um, and I scored really well, but you know, I did it in the first round. And so like the whole, like, few hours leading up to final stage it was just like getting that zone getting that mode like and I used to play sports too so I would like I know how to get into like game day mode so that's all I was doing and like psyching myself up and like not over rehearsing the poem but making sure I knew it and making sure I knew the choreo and, and the intensity that I needed to have in my face because that was the most expression I feel like I had it because I was so still and statuesque during the poem I had to bring a lot through my face and my voice. Um, and I still look back and I'm like, you could have done more, but that's just like the the perfectionist in me. Yeah, it's that it's that inner critic, you know. Um, but if, if you don't mind going there for a moment, was there a turning point or a traumatic experience in particular during your your stay in, in whatever psych institution you were in that really led to like, I need to tell this story someday. It was when I found out about the 72 hour rule and the weekends not counting. Because the staff led me to believe, they told me there was like, you're gonna be here for 72 hours. Like that's just what it is. Like when I got there, they told me the whole, um, actually they didn't say 72 hours at first. They gave me the two pieces of paper and there was a red piece of paper and a white piece of paper. And they said, 
you sign the white piece of paper, then you're in here voluntarily. If you sign the red piece of paper, then that means you're refusing treatment. And basically like your stay will be longer because the doctors determine like when you're gonna leave and it's kind of like on them. So it looks worse if you don't sign. So I was like, fuck it, give me the white paper. And then, so I got there Thursday night. Mind you, I was in a different hospital like half of the day on Thursday. And then at at like 11 o'clock at night, they transferred me to the actual hospital I was going to be staying at. Um, So I felt like I already spent a whole day. Um, And then that night they said that technically my stay starts tomorrow, but it's only 72 hours. I was like, all right, so bet. So I'm out here Sunday or Monday at the latest, right? And like, so it should be Sunday, technically. I can leave. And they were like, well, they were just kind of like, let me believe that. Um, The weekend came and they said that nobody's going or leaving because like nobody was talking to me about leaving or staying. And it was Sunday and it was like me and three or four other people that were like, we were all told that we were leaving today. And then one of the nurses was like, nobody leaves on the weekends. Like, let's just get that out the way. I'm like, they intake people. They take people in on the weekends, but you can't leave on the weekends. So that made me mad but then monday i was like that's fine i'm leaving tomorrow i don't know what anybody else's story is but i'm leaving tomorrow morning i know that one of the staff even told me that i'll be going home in the morning one of the nurses called my dad and told him to like prepare to like pick me up tomorrow morning and then the next morning came no doctor came to see me no nurse came to talk to me like nothing happened and then it was like noon time, and at noon we got 15 minutes outside. So we were like in line waiting to go outside. And we were just talking about it. Me and this other woman, the only other black woman that was in the center. So I was talking to her about it. And because she was supposed to be leaving too. And she was like, I don't know what's going on. And then the nurse overheard us and she was like, They didn't tell you? I was like, They didn't tell me what? And she was like, The weekends don't count for your 72 hour hold. And I was just like, what do you mean they don't count? And she's like, yeah, it's only, only Monday through Friday count for that. So technically, like, today's your day, too. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> and I, like, I didn't raise my voice or nothing because I knew, like, the consequences behind that in there. So I just sat back and got quiet. And I just, like, silently, like, cried. And I just kept, like, wiping my tears like a little thug. And then... She was, the nurses were like talking about me and I could overhear them talking about me and how like, they were like getting concerned with me because I showed emotion. Um, so I got frustrated. So I walked down the hall cause I was starting to cry more and I just like wanted to yell, but I couldn't. So I started to cry more. So I just like took a walk down the, the little hallway that was there. And uh, the other black woman came and she's like walked with me and like gave me a hug and they told her to stop hugging me but <laughs> and she was just like listen like we got this like just keep it together like we gotta breathe we both here so we just got to enjoy the sun for 15 minutes like don't let them take that away from you because that's the only time we get so she talked me down but that moment of, and then like afterwards we came inside I just went in my room to journal and I think that's when I was starting to write the poem and a nurse came in and talked to me about, so she said that my behavior frightened them um, and that it was threatening and that, um, and she offered me like sedatives. And she was like, and I was like, I'm clearly, I'm visibly fine. Like I'm sitting here calm as day, 
journaling, doing self-care. But it's like they decide when you're okay. Not not yeah. you, right? Yeah. And I was like, absolutely not. Dude, I don't need any sedatives. And I didn't raise my voice or anything because another friend that was there said that like he was yelling and they literally held him down and like injected him with like a sedative. And, and then they had, once they put you on a med, they like, it's mandatory to be on the meds for a certain amount of days to like regulate you. I don't know. It's, it was just scary. And I'm like, yeah, don't drug me. Please don't drug me. Like I'm really, I would normally tear this place up, but I'm holding it together so well. <laughs> so like, um, you know, I refused it and they were just like, all right, well, we're going to like monitor you a little more. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't wait to get out of here. Um, yeah, it's so bad. And they and they usually inject you with Thorazine or Haldol, which is like what they call a chemical restraint, you know, so it keeps you down for a long period of time. Yeah. And I was just so I was afraid of that. And like, especially after hearing it from like somebody who I met in there who was, who was super kind, we still keep in touch the person. So um, and yeah, it just like it was just a, a frightening experience. And I was like, um, that moment, like that specific experience of finding out about the 72 hour hold and weekends not counting and all of that. And it, I just felt like, okay, so y'all have been lying to me from the get go. Because let me not even start on the lies that the first responders gave me the police and, uh, you know, paramedics, firefighters, all of that whole parade that showed up and all everybody who lied to me throughout that whole process and everybody who lied to me at the first hospital I was at and so I just felt like this incredibly like unsafe and I could not trust anything but they were in control of everything and I was like this is this is just really not right this is messed up this is not and I was at a, a good hospital and like doctors were saying that but also like you know, other people who I met who are patients let me know that they were at, like, they've been to multiple hospitals and they're like, honestly, this is one of the nicer ones. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> that's scary to think of. Like, so in a way I was lucky. Yeah. One of the good ones, air quotes, right? Air quotes. Uh, it's like, uh, what makes it good? Oh, it's clean. <laughs> oh, it, oh, it smells better. Oh, you might, maybe you have your own room. Maybe, maybe the shared room you're in has a newer, you know, s some newer furniture or <laughs> private bathroom or, you know, basic, basic human dignities sometimes are just like, all right, well, that makes it a better hospital, right? <laughs> so, wow, that was, that was quite a bit of, um, of traumatic experiences as it relates to psychiatric holds and institutionalization and the three-day contracts that a lot of people don't often hear about right when they first come in um do you think that there could ever be a world that has a different mental health response from the psychiatric institution do you think that we could actually bring like more emergency mental health responses into the community you think that there could be a world without places like this. I think I have hope for that. Right now, with what this government and how they care about people, I don't know if it's possible right now. And I know that like in, you know, in certain areas, they do have 
um, response teams, like, you know, um, but it's just not everywhere. It's not widespread. It's not consistent. It's not, it's understaffed, you know, and I, I do have hope, you know, because one of the things that I've, I've learned just like in reading like comments and getting messages from people about the poem, there's some misinterpretation and folks think that like, I'm kind of like, F all psych wards and, and medical facilities and psychiatric care. And that's really the exact opposite. I think it's so important to have these, these, um, you know, psychiatric facilities and mental health facilities and these, this help because we need the help. What the problem is what goes on inside of them. And that's often like the case across the board in this country is like the, the systematic problems that exist within, you know, um, that's, that's the issue. And it's the, the doctors that don't care, the nurses that don't care, the staff that are just there for a check, you know, that the staff that make fun of it. Um, I have a friend who's actually a poet that works as a psych in a psych hospital somehow. And I've seen them like poke fun at their patients. And I'm just like, that's part, even if it's not super harsh, like that's kind of part of the problem. That's kind of where it starts. And it's like, those type of jobs aren't for everybody, I think, you know, um, not to say this person isn't great at their job, but that was just like a small example, right? Of like things that I, I've just seen on social media. And I know that like what happens inside and I've seen it happen and I've seen staff make fun of other clients while I was in there. And like, I've checked, I checked staff. Um, <laughs> because of like I'm just like that's not cool like there was a, a client that was like so over medicated she could barely sit in her chair and she was like falling and drooling on herself Cindy the I, I mentioned Cindy in um my poem and it, it was Cindy and I was like I had to go get a staff and I was like why isn't somebody with her because I know she's on one-to-one -one right now I know that and like the thing is I used to work in group homes and like you know I've worked with like youth that had behavioral issues and mental health issues so like i've kind of worked in this field a little bit not in psych hospitals but like i've been like a i've been like kind of staff and like care home cares like you know not home cares that's the wrong phrasing um but like you know like group homes and and centers and stuff like that so it's like i kind of why am i doing your job i'm a patient here and i'm going to get you to help another patient because y'all are chatting and catching up or talking about sports or whatever it is y'all are doing um so it's like and that's just like you know the very surface of like the problems that go on that exist within psychiatric hospitals within mental health facilities um and so I do hope you know I have hope and that's part of the reason why I'm so excited about like the poem becoming so popular and becoming such like a conversation piece is because it started even in small areas like it did start a little bit of change and I saw that and I got to be a part of some of that um I got to like sit in and speak to like a whole staff of like nurses and doctors and staff from a psychiatric facility um a couple times and it was just like really cool to like get them to see the perspective of the patient so that they could reconsider how they do their work and how they treat their patients. And it was like, it was really cool to see that and like have, you know, people tell me that like they've sent, they've showed my poem to like their therapist their, or like 
stuff like that or like they've been in hospitals and they'll tell the staff to look up the poem and they're just like oh and they're like yeah that's how we feel and it's like it feels like amazing to know that like that I was able to my I was able to use my voice to tell this story and even though like I was literally just telling my own story which is what I always do in my poetry like I'm very honest and transparent like all of my poems actually happen to me like as I tell them there's no like yeah there's no like imagination or extra or like no all of these are my real experiences and even though I was like sharing just my personal story like it is the story of like so 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 many people right and that's often what happens with poetry with you know not even just poetry but just as artists as people as we share our stories we find that like you know we're not alone and there are so many other people that share these experiences um so it it just makes me really happy that like I kind of was able to give a voice to other people when I was in a point like a space where I felt like my voice had been taken away for a moment yeah there's so many black brown indigenous people of color for example right who are involuntarily hospitalized all the time there's some horrible history with that there's a lot of there's there's many things that that relate to involuntary hospitalization and oppressing people so and i think i i I agree i think it's it's the type of help it's the context of help it's the context of support it's how it's guided how it's designed i'd like to see a lot more mental health in the community and not so much in institutions i want to see violence prevention right in conversations when we're younger and younger, right? Like talking about systemic oppression, trauma, the things that happen to us, right? And yeah, so I think that that'll, that really leads to the next piece here. And that's really, you know, um, what, what were some of the, some of the supports that you would want to see people in your family have? What, what are some of the supports you wish you had? Uh, during that experience? I just wish that I was heard more than anything because I expressed that I wasn't doing well before I had a breakdown that led to um, my parents feeling like they needed to call 911, even though I begged them not to. You know, I I openly, and this is just like, I mean, it's not just my family because I felt like there's a lot of people whose families like, especially when our parents are like older, like that older generation just, you know, they be in their old habits and some sometimes. And so, you know, my dad is, um, he's not a supportive person. Like he doesn't know how to respond well to like emotions or like mental health. Um, and, you know, when I expressed that I wasn't doing well, I was kind of just like blamed for why I wasn't doing well. And I wish, like one, I wish I could have got a hug. <laughs> I didn't even get a hug. Um, and I wish that I could have like, you know, just been like heard and like, okay, what do you need? What do you want to do? Like, how can I help you? And none of that happened. And I feel like those are such simple questions and simple ways to like be there for somebody. It's just like being present. Sorry, I'm about to get emotional, I think. Um, just like being present and like, offering like okay offering to be there in however whatever capacity you can you know asking what this person needs and figuring out a way to provide that or a way to help provide it or you know like 
especially if I feel like it's really difficult for um, in certain scenarios um, to just like express how we're doing and be vulnerable and admit like, yo, I'm not okay right now. Like I'm not handling life well. I think it's like, sometimes it's really hard to do that. And in certain communities and certain scenes and certain groups, like I think it's becoming something that's like easier, but it's like, it's not everywhere, you know? Um, within my family, it's not something that's easy to do. So, but I did it and it was just like, damn, like this, this is really hard to do. And this is the response that I get. I just, I just wish more than anything that like I was heard and I received that support instead of, because I feel like I was kind of attacked and like blamed for my mental state um, and like made to seem like I was almost like irresponsible in a way because I'm not doing good. And I like let myself get to this place and I'm like, yeah, but like trauma and stuff, <laughs> it weighs on you. Um, so yeah, I think that, and also like before my parents, like um, once it got down to like me, like not being well and like, I did hold a, a knife to my arm, but that was only because of a comment my father made. Like, it was like kind of like an attention seeking, like scare you type of moment, um, which isn't like to justify it or any way, you know, but he had made a comment of like, if I hurt myself, he would just pick me up and put me in a hospital. And like the way he said it is like he referred to me like I was like a slab of meat that he would just like pick up and toss away. And I was just, it made me, I was like, damn, you really don't care, huh? Like you really don't care. Um, so that, and that was the moment that after that he went to the police station and told them. And then the police was like, boop, boop. And then before my dad could even get back to the house, there was I was getting taken out of in an ambulance. So it's so it's it's so rough, like how the people in our lives respond to things. And I can totally relate to the to the piece of like, oh, I wish I had a hug. I wish I had this. I wish I had this response, because I feel like we so often like turn to isolation to figure your own stuff out right before we actually reach the point of connection and like actually listening right not just like i hear you like i'm here i'm just but like actually like 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 okay like there's there's something going on right like i like to always say that i didn't consent to being alive right but yet i'm alive every day it's like of course i'm gonna struggle with it at some point of course i'm gonna have those feelings and i'm expected to never talk about them expected to never talk about how i'm suicidal or i want to die right right and it's just, I just feel like it's not a realistic expectation. Um, and I just, I mean, I'm not, not to say that like everybody has thoughts like this, but I just know like so many people that do. And I know like so many spaces and families and friends that like kind of aren't able to um, support folks and, get scared they just get scared like they're like kind of ignore stuff and then stuff gets bad and then they get scared and and it's I think it's because stuff isn't talked about enough and it's it's you know it's there's kind of like a shame that's put over it and it's like okay we got to keep quiet about this you got to keep it to yourself you got to just deal with it you got to heal you got like and 
it's always something that's like forced to keep quiet, especially like in black and brown families, I think like there's just like this stigma of like, you know, I mean, in my family in particular, like I'm black and brown and like nobody goes to therapy. Like I'm like <laughs> probably one of the first people to like consistently go and I just recently started like actually going and like, you know, giving it my all. And so my family doesn't do that. They don't support that. They don't talk about mental health. They don't, um, even though like, um, I'm no psychiatrist, but I'm pretty sure my parents both struggle with their own <laughs> mental health, you know? Um, but nobody talks about it. Nobody gets help. It's just something that's like kind of not real. Um, and so it's, it's, it makes it difficult to open up about it and to get support and to find support because, if like you grow up in a family that's like that, it's like you get afraid to like reach out to friends or others and, you know, get that support and find it. Cause it's like, yeah, damn, if you can't get it at home, that's supposed to be where you get everything, right? That's like what people say. It's supposed to be where you get the most love, where you learn, you know, where you have the most support. Um, and that's not always the case in everybody's family. Um, and that's And that's super powerful to be willing to become vulnerable and to reach out for support in those ways when everything everything in this world tells you not to right especially when your family's like we're surviving like systemic racism's real like there's so much suffering here right we have to work twice three times as hard right you don't have time to seem weak in a white supremacist society right so that's like yeah yeah that's it's quite a bit to then go like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And I think in hindsight, like it definitely like, not to sound like corny, but like it definitely makes you stronger actually to like be able to be vulnerable and let things go because it's like, think of it as like literally holding weight. Like if you literally, if you got a backpack and you got to just keep carrying these rocks and it's like you weighing your back down and like, yeah, it hurts. You got to like put stuff down. But at the same time, like you keep walking, you still walking with these rocks. So you getting stronger, like you're building strength from holding all this weight, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I don't know where I was going with that metaphor, but I made my point. <laughs> it's that idea of like, we're resilient, but like, we shouldn't be expected to be resilient right like it shouldn't be like like you can get over it because you're resilient right <laughs> and that kind of idea you know so it's so 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 powerful um do you do you have anything that you want to tell our listeners today i want to first just like virtually hug anybody who's listening who has like gone through this experience and feels like alone in any way um, or like lost trying to like, I felt very lost after the experience. Like I had to like kind of rebuild from ground zero. Um, and so I just want to extend like my love to people first and foremost. Um, and I also want to say like, don't be discouraged from still getting help because I was for a while. Um, my, I mean, I never really went to therapy before. I tried like counseling here and there. And then like, it's like, yeah, this isn't for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was in the hospital in 2019 and it wasn't until a few months ago that I got my first like therapist and I have weekly sessions now. Um, and 
I just want to say like, don't, you know, sometimes like you may find a therapist and they're not the one for you. Like the one I have right now, she may not be the one, but it's like, cool. Like she helped so far. Um, but just don't be so discouraged from getting help. Like it is, I, I was really afraid to get help because I'm like afraid of sharing too much or saying the wrong thing because I know they're mandated reporters. I know what will happen if I say something. And so I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I do like, this is what we're talking about today. And like, I kind of like censor myself in certain moments um, because I don't need them to put me in a hospital. I just need them to be here and be emotionally supportive for me while I vent and get this shit out. So um, sorry for cursing. I'm like, not supposed to be doing that. No, that's fine. Curse away. Curse away. Okay. Um, I know it slipped a couple of the times. I can't help it. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I want people to not be so completely discouraged from finding help. Like, you know, take time and space, find, find support in other ways too. Like, you know, sometimes it means switching up your friends group, you know, sometimes it means like, you know, joining new spaces, um, finding new things to do. Um, and that's okay. It's like, like, re, re, find yourself again, rediscover yourself. Um, cause you're not done yet. Oh, thank you, Anita. Thank you. This is so powerful. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for this conversation, for this platform, for this, all of this, like, this is super, super important. This is what I'm talking about. Having a conversation, making it normal, like you're doing that. And I think that's amazing. Like you're taking the steps to do your part and make these conversations normal. Um, and I love that. I appreciate it. And I think the more conversations we have like this, the more we can transform mental health in the way we know it in our world. Thank you all for joining me today for this transformative conversation with Anita Diaz. I am now going to invite her up to perform her piece, and the psych ward says, please welcome Anita D. And the psych ward says, there is no need to worry. This asylum was built to help you. And just like the straps on the stretcher that you rolled in on, we are going to keep you safe and secured. Notice the locked doors and all the cameras perched in the corners like hawks. We will be watching, but this is all for you and your well-being. You are sick, anxious, depressed, a danger to yourself. The state told us to hold you for 72 hours, but if you sign this paper, we can pretend your stay here this weekend is voluntary. Friday morning, you will be woken up by strangers in white coats and clipboards. You will be asked again and again and again about why and how you want to kill yourself. Be honest. 
Remember, you are only here for three days, so take advantage of the five to ten minutes you have with the doctors. But understand, he has a list of patients as long as his pay stubs. So you won't be receiving any actual therapy sessions while you're here, but we will recommend them as treatment for after we let you out. Until then, we want you to be comfortable, so sit back, enjoy the plastic furniture and coloring books. We have old radios with no antenna, but the static is still loud enough to drown out the sound of the woman screaming in 2B. That's just Cindy. She just does that sometimes. Well, she didn't always, but she does now, and until we can find the right medication, we are going to keep helping her, just like we want to keep helping you if only you'd let us. It's Friday morning, and you haven't even tried the meds yet. You're still lying to us about holding the knife to your arm like your parents haven't already told us everything. Just be honest and let us help you. Did I mention that the state only recognizes the existence of psychiatric patients Monday through Friday? Meaning, the past 48 hours you've spent here didn't even count. Meaning, we still have time for a breakthrough or a breakdown. This is a good thing. This means we still have time to help you. And I can see that you're getting upset, but do not walk away from me with tears streaming and knuckles buried in palms. That type of body language is aggressive, and we might have to do something about that. A sedative? Maybe diazepam? Perhaps I don't think being alone is best for you right now. Maybe you should spend time with the other patients. Get to know how they got here. Listen to them when they tell you you got lucky, getting placed in this psych ward. We are one of the good ones, and we want you to stay here. We figure if we keep you long enough, maybe you'll eventually start to fit in, or maybe if we keep you locked up, you'll eventually start to act out, and we will be right here waiting to prescribe you something to label you with the diagnosis. We didn't cause your social anxiety. We only heightened what was already there. We just want to see you reach your full potential as a patient. We told you this asylum was built to help you.